You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. It's amazing how that old song makes you feel like a child, but also the most important person in the world. I love that simplicity. If there's nothing else you got out of today in this sermon I'm about to preach, fumbles and you think this is the worst sermon you've ever heard, you can always fall back on, yes, Jesus loves me. That's some rich theology for the day and for this life. Well, last Sunday night was, was so fun. We had bluegrass and bluebell and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that, that came. We didn't know what to expect. We'd never done this before. Uh, we went through 800 spoons. Now, I am assuming that some people did not eat ice cream. Also, I think I saw a few of you with a spoon in each hand actually uh, eating the ice cream. So maybe somewhere between 800 and 900 people maybe showed up for that. People from our neighborhood, thank you for inviting people. Thank you for, for being here. I thought it was just a, a wonderful evening. Uh, we had a, a dunk tank that um, you probably heard about or maybe you, you saw. We were raising money for uh, Bibles for Ugandan pastors. And so three of our staff members got uh, in the dunk tank. And I think some of y'all actually enjoyed throwing the baseballs at us more than you should have enjoyed throwing baseballs at us. But you threw a baseball, and then, of course, a lot of us got, got thrown into the water. But I just wanted to, to say thank you. Um, we want to send 60 study Bibles to 60 pastors in Uganda. And uh, last Sunday night, you raised $1,067 uh, for that dunk tank. That gets us 32 study Bibles. And so it uh, gets us really close to what we want. We, we would like to send 60 Bibles, which means we had a $900 gap. And so this morning after the 8.40, I thought, well, I'll kind of throw that out there one more time if anybody wants to contribute toward that. And then I figured I'd share with you the number that we had closed the gap, and I'd see if you wanted to give some toward that as well. But I just want you to know the 8.40 um, beats you to the punch and, and extravagantly. Um, I'm not even sure if people gave online, but $3,800 came in this morning for those, for those Bibles. And so we'll be able to purchase even more. So instead of 60 Bibles, I think we'll be sending about 120 Bibles or so uh, to Uganda. The reason we wanted to do that is when we were in Uganda a few weeks ago, uh, you'll hear about this later on and hear about this Wednesday night as well. A lot of the pastors, they become pastors in the villages because they're the first person in their village that became a Christian. So if you become a Christian, like automatically you're just made the pastor there in, in that village so you can tell other people about, about the Lord. And so a lot of them had very little training. Um, their Bibles, if they had a complete Bible, um, were just very basic Bibles. So a lot of the pastors were asking, is there a way for us to know more about Scripture with some, some commentaries or some, some notes in the Bible. So we told them about the NIV study Bible that would be a great gift to them. And so uh, we've already purchased 60. We'll go back and purchase about 60 more because of your generosity. And we will be sending those to Uganda for those 120 now uh, pastors and leaders to be able to have a Bible. So thank you for, for your generosity. Um, also, you might remember at Easter time, we were raising money to help eliminate medical debt for families here in our city and really across our county and across Texas. And you might remember that um, whatever was raised was going to be multiplied, almost pennies on the dollar, 
So that money that was raised could then purchase uh, medical debt that was on the market. And so they would, they would buy uh, medical bonds, medical debt, and that would pay down or eliminate medical debt that families have. So you raised $181,000. That's what was raised uh, during the Easter season. And that was going to eliminate $18.9 million of medical debt for families here in Waco, uh, for families across our county, families across Central Texas. Well, as you know, the economy has been really interesting the last few weeks. We've definitely seen some inflation uh, enter in. And so some things cost a whole lot more. However, it actually becomes beneficial for a debt market when inflation is happening. So we're able to purchase more than that $18.9 million of, of medical debt. I want you to see what your $181,000 turned into as far as elimination of medical debt for families in Waco, McLennan County, and across Texas. So here's the number that was eliminated. $34 million of of medical debt. And that's an amazing number, but I want you to make sure you see that other number. That means that 8,941 families in Texas had debt erased, completely erased. In fact, every family in McLennan County that had medical debt in collection, they're all forgiven completely of of their debt. Every family in Hill County, every family in Bell County that had medical debt in collection completely paid off. But it went beyond even Central Texas. Uh, There were a couple hundred families in Bear County, down near San Antonio, that they had their debt uh, completely eliminated. And literally a couple of thousand families down in Cameron County near the border that had all their medical debt erased. So what's happening this week and next week is that 8,941 letters are going out to these 8,941 families. And they get this letter and it says all of your medical debt has been completely erased. It's been completely taken care of. It says it's been taken care of by the people of Highland Baptist Church. And then our, our um, um, URL, our website address is given there just in case anybody wants to hear what we're about or want to reach out to us or prayerfully ask why in the world we would do this for them. It gives us an unbelievable open door to express to them the hope of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the love that God has for us. You know, we love people because God loves us. And so we just like to take that love, redistribute that love, take that grace, redistribute that grace to other people. So I'm, I'm, I, it gives me a great opportunity to say with like the most shepherding heart I can say to this wonderful church, thank you for your generosity. You have always been a very generous church, but it's amazing how God can take our, if you will, our, our fish and our loaves of 181,000 and then just completely multiply it out to where thousands and thousands of families have their debt completely eliminated. So thank you for being a generous, you've been a generous church before I got here. You've been a generous church since I've been here. You'll be a generous church after I am here. But thanks for your generosity and not just in giving, not just in money and tithes and offerings. You're a generous church in your grace toward one another. You're a very very generous church in the way that you encourage one another and, and show mercy toward one another. And I think we look a whole lot like Jesus when we're unbelievably generous as, as a people of God. And so thank you for doing that. So just, just kind of hold this in your mind for a second. There were families, 8,941 families in Texas that had debt built up against them. And hear this correctly, it was accurate debt. They really had incurred that, that debt. It was, it was a justifiable debt that had been built up against them. And then you stepped in 
and paid off their debt. You stepped in and, if you will, rescued them from, from their debt. That's, that's the most perfect picture of redemption I could, I could give to you because you and I, Christian, we once had debt built up against us and it was very accurate debt. It was justifiable in the eyes of God that we had all this debt built up against us by our sin, by our rebellion, by our arrogance, by our self-sufficiency. And then someone else stepped in and paid for that and purchased that. And so this is a great segue to where we've been all summer long as we've been looking at the arc of redemption, how God pursues his people, saves his people, and keeps his people. In fact, those are the verbs of God. He pursues, he saves, he keeps. He pursues, he saves, he keeps. And that is the bent of God all throughout history. So what we're seeing is a thread of redemption that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of our salvation from beginning to never ending. So last week we looked at the essence, if you will, of the Old Testament major prophets. So I'll just kind of rewind just a little bit, just a few moments to make sure we're kind of on the same page. We were reminded last week that God's word and God's warning came through people. And so it was the, it was the, the, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. It was the Old Testament minor prophets we'll look at later on today. Eventually, of course, it would become Jesus himself. But God's word and God's warning is going to come through a person. God's heart through a human voice. And that's really important for us to realize in this arc of redemption, this is how God always speaks to his people. He will give his word and his warnings through another, his heart through a human voice. And so today, we're going to look at the Old Testament minor prophets. Now, because they're called minor prophets does not make them lesser prophets. They weren't like in minor league hoping to make it into the big leagues one day or or in G League or Q School trying to make it into the big time. It's just that their books in the Old Testament are shorter than, than the major prophets. And honestly, I think the Old Testament minor prophets can be very difficult to read. They do not write in a a linear form. They will jump from present day. They will jump to the times of Israel that are are coming. Then the minor prophets will jump to the kingdom of God, the the kingdom of, of heaven, the second coming of Christ. Then they'll go back and remind Israel what had happened 400 years ago. So they they do not write in a linear fashion. In fact, Martin Luther said of the Old Testament minor prophets, they have a strange way of talking. And I think I would agree with Luther on that. Let me step back just a little bit as we enter into the minor prophets today in this arc of redemption. The question we often ask Highland is, what do others think? We're kind of conditioned to that question, really even from from childhood, what do other other people think about me? And often we'll spend a lot of our, our our energy, and we're even governed sometimes by what we think others think of us. You know, what do other people think about God? What do other people think about social issues? What do other people think about about style, about trends, about technology? What do other people think think about me? And so we're kind of conditioned to often wonder and be curious what other people think is kind of really a, a question that here in the West, we're, we kind of grow up with that the whole time. What do other people think about me? And a lot of people spend a lot of their days and a lot of their energy wondering that simple thing. What do other people think? And then we live accordingly to what we think other people think about us. But really, here's the question we should ask. What does God think? You see, we've been so conditioned to what do others think? The question we should be asking is, what does God think? And that is infinitely more important than the first question. 
So the narrative in the Old Testament minor prophets begins to, to change. The, 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 the literature begins to change. The rhythms of, of the sentences begin to change. Earlier in the Old Testament, the majority of the Old Testament, before we get to the major prophets and minor prophets, is, is storytelling. This thing happened to this person in this place. You think about the first five books of the Old Testament, just a lot of stories, some of your favorite stories um, of, of Noah and, and the flood. We see that narrative there. Then we get into, into the kings. We see the narratives of, of David and Goliath. This thing happened to this person in this place. But something begins to, to shift on us here when we get to the minor prophets because God begins to speak. We begin to see God speaking in the first person, God in first person. And so he'll say things like, I love this. Or I despise this. Or I think this of my people. And so the, the Old Testament minor prophets are very powerful because it's not just a prophet speaking. It is God speaking. God speaking in the first person. It is what God is thinking. So today I want us to see the majestic picture of God today in the minor prophet of Amos. And so if you'd make your way to Amos, some of y'all might need a few seconds, some of you might need a few minutes to get there. But we're going to get to the book of Amos. Um, it's the 30th book in the Old Testament, which does not help you whatsoever. But if you can find Ezekiel, you'll go to the right. So Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. And honestly, it might be easier to find Matthew and go back 10 books to, to find your, your way there to, to Amos. Because in, in the book of Amos today, we're going to see a God who is unwavering in his holiness and his justice, but also a God who is unwavering in his grace and his love for you. As you turn there, let me give you a little context of Amos. Amos was not a prophet by profession. Uh, his family, they weren't prophets. Amos is actually a shepherd and a fig farmer. And had never, as far as we can tell in, in Old Testament history, had never really even been around prophets or did not perhaps even know exactly what a prophet was. He lived in a small town of Tekoa, which sounds like a... East Texas or West Texas town to me at Tekoa, and it's um, south of Jerusalem, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So this is interesting. This means that, that Amos lived in the southern kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Judah, but God's going to call him actually to go to the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Just a little historical reminder. You have David, then you have Solomon, and the next king, Rehoboam, uh, he's a, 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 not a very good king, so the, the kingdom splits right after Solomon, right when Rehoboam comes in. And so you have the northern kingdom of Israel in the north with Samaria as the capital. Then you have the southern kingdom there in the south, of course, with Jerusalem as the capital. And so um, Amos is actually from the southern kingdom, but God's going to call him to go to the northern kingdom to, to prophesy there. The other thing you need to know before we jump into this is that both kingdoms were economically booming. I mean, everyone was very successful because there were no wars going on at this time. And so Israel in the north, Judah in the south, they're both doing very well. They're very successful. But rather than seeking out opportunities, rather than God's people seeking out opportunities to, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God and with others, they instead embraced arrogance. And they embraced self-sufficiency and they embraced materialism. And so God's going to communicate in this passage that he has an utter disdain for the hypocrisy of his people. My last contextual statement is this. Amos prophesied during serious injustices. There were some serious injustices going on. Even though the economy was good, it was roaring. 
There were some serious injustices going on. The first thing was this. The poor were oppressed. We're going to be flipping a lot through the book of Amos. And so get your fingers ready. Let's begin in Amos chapter 2. Let's go to verse 7. The beginning part of of verse 7 there. So here's, here's the conditions in which Amos was prophesying. The first one, the first serious injustice was that the poor were being oppressed. So chapter 2, verse 7. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and then they turn aside the way of the afflicted. Go one page over probably to the right and go to chapter 5. Look at verse 11 and verse 12 and eventually um, I'll have some of these scriptures on the screen as well but these are just kind of some some verses for us to look at to kind of get a picture of what's happening. A little bit of the context. Uh, Chapter 5 verse 11 verse 12 similar language. Therefore, because you, again, speaking to God's people, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, from the man who is poor. God says, you have built houses of hewn stone. I'm not going to let you dwell on them. You have planted pleasant vineyards. You're not going to drink wine from them. Verse 12, for, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and here it is again, and who turn aside the needy in the gate. Go over one more page to to chapter 8. Look at verse 4 with me. Again, very familiar language. This is kind of giving us a picture of what's happening in in, in Israel. The people of God. God's chosen people. Hear this. God is saying to his people. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Now he's not talking about bringing poverty to an end. He's talking about killing those who are poor. Uh, one more scripture, chapter 8, verse 6. This is the very, very beginning of verse 6. And it actually even kind of slides into even a darker place. That we may buy the poor for silver. That we may buy the needy for a pair of, of sandals. This is people exploiting and selling the poor. Or they're, they're buying the poor for, for slaves. And it was not just the men. Uh, women also were oppressing the poor And what I think is one of the most startling passages in all the Old Testament, if you go to Amos chapter 4, verse 1, I put this on the screen. This This is startling. And let me just say before I read it, I don't write God's word, I just preach God's word. So this is God speaking to women. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Ouch, what a brave God. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. The word Bashan is, is the Hebrew word for fruitful. And it was speaking of, of the plains of Bashan that were known to, to have great harvest and, and therefore great livestock were able to eat all of this rich harvest. So the cows of Bashan were, were large. And so God says to these ladies, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. You are on the mountains of Samaria who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. And then you say to your husbands, hey, bring me another drink. Bring that we may drink. So people were exploiting the poor. They were exploiting the needy. They were selling the poor as slaves. So this disgusting sin of of human trafficking has long been a part of man's sinful history. Here's the second condition, the second injustice. This is interesting in juxtaposition to the poor were oppressed, the godly were despised. So it's not just that the poor and and, and the needy and the hungry were being pushed aside or even sold. Those who loved God were hated. Chapter 2, verse 6. 
Thus says the Lord, which is the beginning of a lot of prophetic statements. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver. So it was not just the needy and the poor that were sold into slavery or sold as slaves. Those who were righteous also were being sold for silver. Jump down again to, to chapter, chapter 5 and look at verse 10. Right before what we read earlier, we, we read verse 11, verse 12, look, look at chapter 5, verse 10. They hate him who reproves, or your Bible might says the one who corrects people. They hate him who reproves in the gate. And they abhor him, which is like a deep hatred. They hate the person who speaks the truth. We already read verse 12. Let me read verse 12 to you again of that same chapter, chapter 5, verse 12. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous. So in other words, during this time, you were hated if you told the truth. You were opposed if you were righteous in your words and in your actions. If you followed God, you'd be sold into slavery. The righteous were persecuted. Those who followed the ways of God were hated in Israel. That's the condition in which Amos is coming to prophesy. So let's look at the heart of the matter today. If you're taking notes, here it is. God demands justice from his people. And that's not just Old Testament. That's 2021. God still demands justice from his people. Let's go to Amos chapter 5 and let's pick up the last few verses. A few of these verses might sound very familiar to you. They're etched in a, in a statue in Washington, D.C. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. Now, this is God speaking. So again, remember I said, if you want to know what God thinks, you can read through Amos and discover exactly what he thinks. Because he begins here in verse 21 by saying, I hate I despise your feast, your, your, your gatherings of fellowship, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, which was a time of prayer, a time of coming before the Lord. I hate those things. God says, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, you're doing everything you should do, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look upon them. Wow, verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. Take away from me the melody of your harps. I will not listen. What are you looking for, God? Verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. First thing I want you to see is that sin will not be excused. When we see that God demands justice from his people, it's a reminder that sin will not be excused. The people of Israel, they were sinning, and yet they were also acting, if you will, ritualistically like God's people. They were sinning, they were oppressing the poor, they were exploiting the needy, they were looking down on those who wanted to live in a righteous way, and yet they would still gather for their, their, their feast and for their prayer times and for their songs of praise to God, for their offerings to the Lord. And God said, I don't have, I don't have anything to do with that at all. Why? Because sin will not be excused. In the book of Amos, we see that sexual sin will not be excused. Homosexuality will not be excused. Affairs will not be excused. Exploiting others for your own gain would not be excused. Lying would not be excused. Trampling the poor would not be excused. Forgetting the hungry would not be excused. Taking a fetus from a mother's womb, chapter 1, verse 13, would not be excused. Empty-hearted worship would not be excused. Hey, Highland. It is no small thing to sin against God. 
It is no small thing. So what is it that God is looking for from his people? We see it in verse 24. Uh, this, is, this is etched on the statue of Martin Luther King in, in Washington, D.C. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. God is demanding justice and righteousness from his people. But here's the second thing as we see kind of the heart, the crux of, of Amos, the minor prophet. Judgment will be extreme. In other words, he's just. Some people, maybe even some people here, some people watching online, they think that God is mean in the Old Testament and nice in the New Testament. And that's what everybody understand. He is just in both Testaments. He is always just. He is always holy. His, his judgment is going to be extreme. So I want us to, to gather our, our wits about us because chapter 9, what I'm about to read to you will probably make your heart race a little bit. Chapter 9, verse 1. Amos chapter 9, verse 1. I'm just going record of saying it's an unsettling passage we're about to read. It is speaking of the judgment of God. So I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And he, the Lord, said, strike the capitals. The capitals were the very top, of course, of the columns. Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, they start digging toward hell. From there shall my hand take them. If they start climbing up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of, of Carmel, we looked at that last week with Elijah, on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search them out and I will take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the sea serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into prison, go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all that rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. Woe. He's not an indulgent grandfather. He is, verse 6, the Lord. You don't see this chapter on a bumper sticker you can buy at Mardell's. This is not on the back of a camp t-shirt this week. We don't sing these lyrics. But it shows the extreme justice and judgment of God. Go back maybe just one page to chapter 7 verse 4 because the, the extreme judgment continues. Chapter 7 verse 4. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling. He was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and that fire was even eating up the land. So God is holding trial here and, and judgment will be overwhelming. It will be complete. People will be held to account, which is still true today. So if sin was not going to be excused and his judgment is, verse four right here, chapter seven, his judgment is fiery and devouring. It sounds like we're in a lot of trouble. It sounds like humanity itself is doomed. 
If God says, I don't care where you go, I will find you and death will be your judgment. And if I were to have a stand and pray and go home right now, there would be no gospel. You see, the good news isn't that good of news until you realize how bad the bad news really was. And so we get to see the brilliance now of the gospel begin to flicker a little bit here in Amos. The, the beautiful picture of redemption begins to light up and that light is so bright against the darkness and that background of judgment. So look at chapter five, verse four. And these words give me goosebumps every time. So excuse me if I start convulsing, convulsing up here just a little bit. Chapter five, verse four. For thus says the Lord, the house of Israel. Don't miss these four words, Highland. Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel. In other words, don't go anywhere else for life. Don't enter into Gilgal. Don't cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. But here's those, that same phrase again at the beginning of verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. In the middle of this judgment, this death, in the middle of the fire, God says, but if you'll turn to me, if you will seek me, the, the word seek right there in, in Hebrew is the word darash. And darash means if you'll turn around and look at me. If you'll turn away and seek me. The word darash means to inquire of, but if you will inquire of the Lord, if you will seek the Lord, if you will turn to the Lord, let me just ask you this, Highland, what is the effect? What is the reward? What is the benefit of seeking the Lord? Life. What mercy. In the middle of the judgment and the fire and the completeness and the extreme nature of this judgment, God says, if you'll turn to me, you'll live. If you'll seek me, you'll live. If you'll turn to me, look to me, seek after me, you will live. Which enters us into the last picture we see here of Amos of a new king and a new kingdom that's coming. It's almost as if God instructed Amos to wait to the very end of this book to remind us that a king was coming that would bring light and life. And really the word he would bring is restoration. So go to the very last chapter, almost the very end of this book. Go to Amos chapter 9 with me. Because a new king and a new kingdom is coming. Amos chapter 9 verse 11. This is where the stirrings of the ark of redemption begin to rise up. We begin to hear more clearly this, this moment, this time, this longing for, for redemption, for rescue. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. So in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. Your Bible might translate that the tabernacle of David. Uh, your Bible might translate that the temple of David. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. And I'm going to repair its breaches. I'm going to raise up its ruins. And I will rebuild it as in the days of old. That they, my people, may possess that remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. It was the rumors of a Messiah. 
We begin to, to hear the ground begin to quake a little bit that a rebuilder is coming. And God will punish sin, but he'll also promise restoration for all of those who, who believe. Although the Lord allows this devastation here in the book of Amos, he will also bring reconstruction. And Jesus, he is the foundation of this tabernacle, this temple, this booth of David that has fallen. Jesus in the New Testament, he's not the cornerstone for the restoration of David's fallen tabernacle. Just as Christ's death happened on a cross, then he rose again, followed by resurrection. It's the result of all of those who put their trust and their faith in Christ. Though we would be destroyed by the judgment of God, Christ, the cornerstone, will come and restore all of those who believe. So Jesus, Israel's true Messiah, Jesus, Israel's true king and true rebuilder, will return to earth. This is what Amos is talking about in Amos chapter 9, verse 11. And all the nations will acknowledge Jesus as king. Amos can be wrapped up, I think, by a quote from John Newton. John Newton was a slave a captain, a slave ship captain from England. Quite literally did what we just read. He traded people for silver. Would pick up those upon the continent of Africa, would take them from their homes and would sell these Africans as slaves in the New World as well as in Europe. Somehow, this man who hated righteousness began to seek after God through Christ. Wrote a song that you've probably sung at some point in your life called Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But also made this statement that I think wraps up Amos perfectly when Newton said, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. If you're a Christian here today, that's your story. That is your biography. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Our sin was great. His mercy is more. Would you stand with me please and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the story in Amos, a reminder God, just in, in the plot line across the arc of redemption, the minor prophets were coming saying that there, there will be judgment for all who sin and all sin. And there will be no way to live unless you seek God, unless you turn to God, unless you inquire of God. Father, that is how every believer in this room today has been saved because we turned to God. Through Christ, we were saved. We repented of sin. We inquired of the Lord. We sought him. God, today I thank you that we can turn to God and live. In the middle of the judgment that would accurately be ours to bear for eternity. You sent one who would pay for us. You sent one who would go in our place to that cross. You sent one to redeem us to rescue us. You pursued us, God, through Christ. You saved us through Christ. You're keeping us through Christ right now. Praise God. He's a pursuer, a saver, and a keeper. So God, today we rejoice in a God who has given us mercy. But God, this inexhaustible mercy that you pour upon your people, it does not make us want to run to sin. It makes us want to run to you and get more mercy and more grace for the day.
God forbid that we would try to take advantage of the grace of God, the mercy of God by trying to sin even more. God, no, we, we run to you. We come before you. We sing to you. We bow to you. We kneel to you. A God who is rich in mercy. How deep, how high, how wide your mercy is for us. So Father, we thank you again for this, this one little story along the big story of the ark of redemption. God, our story from, from beginning to never ending. Thank you, God, that when you save, you save forever. You save completely. Every Christian in this room, every Christian watching online, we have been saved with a great salvation. And salvation belongs to the Lord. So God, we thank you for time in your word today. We are built up. We are encouraged. Thanks for pursuing us, saving us, keeping us.